this morning we're going to uh, return to our study in the Gospel of John. You know, we've had a couple weeks uh, away from that with the holidays and all. Uh, but uh, we're going to be, uh, you know, it's been a few weeks since we've actually been in this study. We're near the end of our study in this gospel. We've been at it for, what, about a year now? Uh, and uh, yeah, it's sad when you think of it. Did you go, oh, because <laughs> that's how I feel when we come uh, near the end of these uh, as well. On the back of your bulletin, you'll find uh, a, a, an explanation of the structure of the Gospel of John, and just to familiarize yourself with where we are, if maybe you're new here, um, we're in the last section. We're in the Book of Glory. John's divided into two parts. We're in the final section here, where his glory is actually being revealed. Uh, we need to take a moment and kind of refamiliarize ourselves with where we are in the story, because when we left off, it, you know, the drama was just about reaching its peak. Um, if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, if you'll find your way to John chapter 19, that's where we're going to be today. In the story so far, Jesus has come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover as he would uh, with all of his fellow brothers and sisters. And, and while he's there, the Jewish leaders or the religious leaders at that time determine it's time to spring their trap and they arrest him uh, on the eve of the Passover. And uh, he's taken before the Sanhedrin, which is the the highest ruling council within Israel at that time. He's tried before them overnight in an illegal trial, and then he's taken before the Roman uh, governor Pilate, who was in charge of that territory for the empire. The religious leaders were pushing for capital punishment. They wanted to be done with this guy, get him, get him off, their, off their stage. But Pilate was hesitant to do that. And we went into all the political intrigue that was back behind all of this story, what was happening with Pilate, like the, 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 the troubles that he had with the empire, the, the conflict between he and the religious leaders. Uh, if you want more uh, on that, you can go back and listen to our earlier teachings uh, about that. But needless to say, it's a tense drama here. The, the religious leaders want one thing, Pilate wants another uh, Pilate has Jesus flogged with what happened in the story so far. He was unsuccessfully trying to get him released, hoping that would inspire some pity. But it became clear in this story that even though Jesus looks like the victim in this, it's, it, it, he's in very much in control of what's happening in, in this story. He's laying his life down. No one's taking it from him. And that means that there was a greater hand guiding these events and Pilate had no power to change it which is crazy because the from the natural perspective of things the guy that had the most power in this entire drama was completely without agency to be able to do what it is that he wanted to do the final straw comes in this argument when the religious leaders apply a political pressure and they claim that they have no king but Caesar Sort of like saying, you know, Yahweh is our God, but Caesar is our emperor. So Pilate knows he's, he's beaten at this point because this was one thing that a representative of Rome just could not allow. And that is for the emperor to think that he is somehow disloyal to the crown by allowing a rival to the crown to exist. So he sent Jesus off to be crucified. And that's where we left off uh, our, our story and where we'll pick up today. If you're there in John chapter 19... We're going to be starting to read from verse 16, and I'm going to read the whole thing uh, in, in one setting. It really needs to be kind of kept together as a cohesive event, and then we'll go back and unpack it and, 
examine what, what it says there. So if you're there in John 19, starting in verse 16, it says, Then Pilate turns Jesus over to them to be crucified. It's very ambiguous language in that. Them, who is them? We're assuming he means the people in charge of crucifying people, but it's also capitulating to what the religious leaders wanted there. So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went to the place called Place of the Skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, change it from the king of the Jews to, he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, no, what I have written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that's what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus, were Jesus's mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here's your son. And then he said to this disciple, here's your mother. And from then on, This disciple took her into his home. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it's finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All right. John is scant on his details in in this event compared to the other Gospels especially. But remember, John's Gospel isn't like the other Gospels in that he's trying to teach us as he goes along. So he's trying to to bring out theological truths. uh, And and so we'll see a lot of variation in this. He'll leave some things out that the other Gospels have. He'll add some details that we hadn't had in the other. uh, but, But he's trying to get at the meaning of these events for us. Uh, also, the first readers of this didn't need somebody to, to give them a lot of detail about crucifixion. This was something that they were very familiar with and were not happy about at all. Cicero, the notable Roman statesman and philosopher, wrote, Crucifixion is the most cruel and shameful of all punishments. This is coming from a, a Roman leader. Let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen, nay, not even near his thoughts or eyes or ears. In other words, you don't want anything to do with this thing. It's that bad. You've heard me say before that crucifixion was Rome's was <laughs> Rome's marketing campaign. Uh, you know that's why they did this in public places. That's why they put a sign over the head of the person who was experiencing, explaining what their crime was, to send the warning out. This was Rome's way of saying we're here to build roads and aqueducts and open up trade opportunities. But if you oppose us, we'll put you on a cross too. have a nice day. Uh, And I don't want to dwell on all the gory details uh, of crucifixion. We can figure it out. I mean, there were nails in the wrists and the ankles right through nerve clusters. The only way to breathe was to pull yourself up to be able to exhale and imagine doing that if your back has been laid bare. 
uh, from a beating. This was pure horror on display. Jesus, who had done no wrong, endured it. And John provides us this detail just before he gave up his spirit and died. And it says in verse 30, Jesus said, it is finished. Now, this was not Jesus just saying, I'm, you know, I'm tapping out. I'm done. The pain's too much. I quit. Uh, the word used in the Greek means that a task has been completed. It's a statement of accomplishment. It is finished. But interestingly, he doesn't say what is finished. Uh, neither does John, uh, actually. Jesus regularly expressed that he was here to do his father's will. He said that he would drink the father's cup. He said that his hour had come to fulfill, to finish his father's work and to be glorified through it. But none of that really informs us about what it is, what it is finished in this. And it's a reasonable question to ask, why did Jesus die? And what was accomplished in his death that prompted him to say that through these events that he's experiencing here, something has been completed? I mean, it's a reasonable question to ask if we didn't have the whole rest of the New Testament, which is what the whole rest of the New Testament is about. Just sitting down and trying to work through the, the, you know, addressing this issue, fleshing out the meaning of Jesus's death and his resurrection to us, his followers, what that means for us, what that means in, in this world. But, but the seeds of that theological garden that we've got in the whole rest of the New Testament, I believe, are planted right here in John's account of Jesus's death. So this morning, we're going to pose that question. Why did Jesus die? What did it finish? And, and what was accomplished through this, this brutality? And so to do this, I want to work backwards through the account that we just read uh, and highlight a few of the things that that I believe are revealed uh, about what his death accomplished. They're right here in the midst of the story. And I want to look at some of the clues that John leaves us here in this passage so that we can consider what this means to us. Because it means a lot to us. It really does, whether we know it or not. So we'll rewind. Let's rewind just a little bit. And the first thing that we encounter as we work backwards from the words, it is finished, is Jesus saying that he's thirsty. And John finds this a significant fulfillment of a messianic prophecy from Psalm 69. It says, you know of my shame and my scorn. Uh, you see that all my enemy, what all my enemies are doing, uh, they give me poison for food. They offer me sour drink for my thirst. But, but what they use, what they use to, to give that drink to Jesus is significant. They put the, a sponge, they soak a sponge, and they put it on a hyssop branch. Now, the sponge, we're not going to dwell on that. Uh, that was its own insult. Uh, every Roman soldier carried a sponge. I'll leave it to you to Google it to find out why. But uh, uh, they put it on a hyssop branch, and they offered it up to Jesus to drink from. John, John hasn't suddenly taken a keen interest in botany. Like, ooh, what species is that? It's not that. This has theological implications to it. He's using this to interpret what's taking place here. Since hyssop was what was used to sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintel of the house before the exodus occurred. Exodus 12, 22. You can read it uh, for yourself. But the curse of death passed over the house 
that had that blood sprinkled on it, sprinkled on with that hyssop branch. Later on, it was used for other purifying rites. Uh, you can look them up, Leviticus 14.4, uh, 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 also verse 6, Numbers 19.18, Psalm 51.7. These are all places where that hyssop branch is, is mentioned, and it's always mentioned in connection with this purification, with this sacrificial system. John is drawing out the connection between Jesus and the Old Testament sacrificial system, indicating that this is the sacrifice that God had intended. This is how God provided atonement for our sins. Remember, atonement is a theological term. You can figure out what it means. You break the word down, at one meant. It's the means by which we're brought back together with God, the way that we're reconciled with God. So in this detail, we can see that Jesus' death on the cross was sacrificial. This is what's finished here, this sacrifice for us. John creates this direct link between the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Jesus took our place. He took the consequences of our sin. So what we'd say, what's finished is that we are forgiven and reconciled with God through Jesus' death. This is why the death of Jesus on the cross is central to historic Christianity. This is the means by which we've been saved. We've been reconciled to God. We've been returned to our original place of friendship with God and our original vocation as being image bearers of God in this world. This is what was accomplished by this. Over and over in the New Testament, this claim is made. Paul says in Romans uh, Five, verse 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. And Peter says it in 1 Peter 3, 8, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. So Jesus died to, to deliver us from the consequences of the fall our determination to live by our own wisdom and, and throw off the wisdom of God or the wisdom of our creator. And that's what's landed us in the world that we live in right now. Sin and death and domination by evil, which we all know is present still in this world. All of this, Jesus delivered us from through sacrificing himself. And in the dying, he said, it is finished. We are reconciled. God, meaning everything that must be done to rescue humanity has been done there in the event of Jesus's crucifixion. We don't do enough good to add any more to that salvation. The salvation that we have isn't dependent on how well we do this Christian thing. Jesus said it is finished in his death and we have to rest in that. Feels counterintuitive, I know. As a human being, we keep thinking, well, I've got to earn something in this whole process. But the reality is, we've got to rest in what he said. We've got to be okay with it. It's finished. It's finished. We don't add to our salvation through good works. And believe it or not, we don't diminish our salvation in sinning. Our salvation is finished. Paul said the same thing in Romans 5 when he said, when, when sin increased, grace increased all the more. But then to qualify it, later on, as he's unfolding these concepts, he says, does that mean we should continue to sin? That grace can just keep on growing and you know, we can show it off? That grace can do its thing? And he said, God forbid. 
Absolutely not. Why? Because it's incompatible with the salvation that he's given us. They don't work together. He, he saved our lives, which means in that sense, our lives belong to him. He rescued us. We belong to him. Which means we have to learn what his values are, what his purpose for our lives is, who he says we are. We have to discover who it is that God says we are, not allow ourselves to be defined by a broken culture or, or, or the, 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 the surmisings of the, of the society around us. We go back to what he said, who he said we are, children beloved by our Father. Uh, you know, so do we do this well? Well, no. I mean, I mean, who here wants to say, oh, I do this great. I'm really good at this. Blake, you don't, you weren't even listening. You just saw me raise my hand and you just followed right along. No, we don't do this well. Apart from Blake, none of us do. But, but this is the way we determine to live. This is the, the direction we set out to follow. Because we want to cooperate with the salvation that was provided to us through Jesus' death on the cross. This forgiven new life has meaning and purpose and value to it that we never understood before. That's why we set out to live this way. It's a journey. But, but the means of obtaining that salvation is already complete. Our relationship with God is sealed and it's finished. He took care of it there. We've got to rest in that. So Jesus' death on the cross, it removes our sin, it reconciles us to God. And usually, as this narrative is being told, that's kind of where we stop. I mean, you've heard me criticize that within the evangelical realm before. We kind of finish it right there. Okay, there we go. We got saved. Whoop-de-doo. Done, done, done. Let's go. But if we rewind a little further, we realize there's more to this than just the fact that we get to go to heaven when we die, and it's even more than that, but either, either way. If we rewind a little further, we find Jesus addressing two people. The disciple whom he loved, which is almost universally uh, believed to be John, the one who's writing this gospel, and his own mother, Mary. And Jesus does something amazing here. I mean, you think of everything that he's been going through this day. And in the midst of all that he's going through, he arranges for her care in his absence. I mean... I can't even wrap my mind around selflessness like that. That's just incredible to me. John is commissioned with taking her into his family. And John and Mary then take on this new family dynamic that's not a part of basic genetics or, or bloodlines or anything like that. It's something completely different. And, and, and many scholars actually see the church, the, the, the new community of Christ, being forecast and, and even formed here in this encounter with, with Christ's death then at the center. It can be a picture of the church formed right there at the foot of the cross, a familial community formed around him giving himself, people who in turn then are characterized by that same selfless, self-giving love. Like what Susie was talking about when she was quoting John in his epistle earlier. We, we follow suit. We follow that same pattern and love selflessly like he did. So in this clue, we can see that Christ's death on the cross created a new community 
based on this self-giving family dynamic. We are formed into the family of God through Jesus' death. And this is a big deal for us as humans. You know, you, somebody might say, oh, well, here he goes. He's plugging church. Come to church. No, it's not that. I, you know, you've never heard me begging people to come to church. The point of this is that we belong to something now. And that's huge. I don't think we ever take enough time to think about what this means. I mean, in Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, the sense of belonging ranks as number three. It's only superseded by the need for food and shelter. After that, we need to belong. We need to know that we're not just kicking around this broken place all by ourselves. It tells us how important the church community is as well. Jesus didn't die on the cross to form a religious system. God's intent is and always has been relational. It's all about reconciling us with him, and then it branches outward, us reconciling with one another. And this sense of belonging, this love that's present in that, this is vital to God's intended purposes for the earth. It's not just something we do to, you know, pass our time on a Sunday morning. There's plenty of things to do. This is about reinforcing the reality that we belong to something more than just ourselves. Jesus, his death is both a, a revelation of God's love and an example of the self-giving love that we operate by. The cross is central to, church, to this church because it's our model for how it is that we live. It's our blueprint for how it is that we approach community in that sense of sacrificial love for one another. And because this kind of love is, is counterintuitive, human nature it's important that we keep it central in our thinking this this kind of love this is this is a love that didn't appear until god revealed it to us because this kind of love is only possible when sin no longer is calling the shots on things because the essence of sin is a false sense of self-love that commandeers our ability to love others all we can do is think about the self Jesus' death on the cross provides the way in which this new community can be formed and we find our place of belonging and our place of, of home. Okay, so Jesus died for our salvation. He died for the formation of the church community. Those are things we know are finished. And both of these come under the ultimate purpose for which Jesus died. That is what we want to remember that is what was finished on the cross. What's that, Rob? Well, if we keep rewinding, we see the, the soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothes, another fulfillment of a messianic prophecy found in Psalm 22. We keep rewinding, we see Pilate and the Jewish leaders arguing about that sign that they put above Jesus' cross, stating his crime, stating simply the king of the Jews. Further back, you remember the last time we taught on this, we saw the soldiers dressing Jesus up in mock royal attire, putting a crown of thorns on his head in place of the royal wreath crown that Caesar would wear. The king motif is heavy. I mean, it's heavy-handed writing on John's part all through this. And it's the one thing that tipped the scale for Pilate when it came to what he was going to do with Jesus because the issue of kingship came up. But... But it's this inscription that Pilate commanded, that sign above the cross. That's the heart of what John is trying to get to in his account of this, of how to interpret the death of Jesus. 
Jesus' death on the cross established God's kingdom in this world with Jesus as king. God's healing reign is now advancing in this world through Jesus' death. Pilate and the, the Jewish leaders, they squabbled over this inscription, arguing over this title. Pilate obviously wrote this as a goad to the, the religious leaders, trying to get at them a, a little bit, uh, mocking them in that. And they pushed their luck by complaining about it to Pilate. But in the end, the sign remains as it is. Again, the people with the power in this narrative don't seem to have the agency to make the changes that they want to make. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and it was written in three languages because Jerusalem was an international city. So, so these were the three dominant languages of that day. Aramaic was spoken by the Jewish people, but it was also sort of a universal language spoken by all peoples. Anywhere you went, you could speak Aramaic and most people would understand you. Alexander the Great made sure of that. Then Greek was the language of the philosophers and the poets of the higher formation of society, the language of the elites. And Latin was the language of the Roman law. So the, the, the language of the, the people, covenant people as well as Gentile people, the human philosophies and the language of the empires of man all got conscripted to declare that Jesus is king, to declare that he is king to anyone who comes by and sees it. I believe Pilate was an unwitting prophet announcing the worldwide scope of Jesus' rule. Jesus is king, and that is the announcement of the gospel message. That is the essence of the good news. When we talk about the good news of God's kingdom, we talk about the gospel, that's what we're talking about, that God's reign, his kingdom has come. You've heard me voice my concern that sometimes we lose sight of that. We emphasize that Jesus died to save us or that, you know, and he did, he did. Or we'll emphasize the formation of the church. And of course, that is a whole part of it. But both our salvation and the church are provided so that we can be subjects of his rule, an outpost of the kingdom of God here on this earth. Because when we say kingdom of God, you know, we often have that misconception of the kingdom of God is often some heavenly place somewhere far away, like, you know, a castle nestled in the clouds way off in the sky or in space or whatever, and it has nothing to do with this world or life right now. But that is a misconception. A kingdom is not just a geographical place. It's defined by people who are ruled by a king or a queen. And that means the kingdom of God is us, people who who are submitting our lives to Christ's rule, who look to him to provide the example, the the teaching and the understanding for what life means and how we go about living it. Jesus ascended as king through his sacrificial death. And that, I think, is one of those things that we really have to grapple with. And, you know, it's in any day and age, that's that's a hard one. His rule is advancing and impacting this world by the lives of those he rules who emulate that same kind of sacrificial love and care for the others. It's incredible. Christ's kingship and the cross are powerful intersections of ideology. To, To the natural mind, they are fundamentally incompatible. The idea of being a king and going through this. Our notions of king and kingdoms collide with this king on a cross. And at some point, it has to create a crisis for us. 
And the crisis is, what do we do with this king on a cross? What do we do with our lives when we're called to emulate this king on a cross? The world is obsessed with authority and dominance, with wealth and violence and power over people, while Jesus displayed the exact opposite in his inauguration as king. Rome came into a territory and built buildings and set up temples and opened up trade, but also put the locals in their place in subjugation to Rome and and threatened people with a cross. Jesus came with no place to lay his head, pointing away from temples, promoting generosity and lifting up the oppressed. And he took the cross on himself, the exact opposite of the way the kingdoms of this world operate and work. God's kingdom arrived and continues to advance through the expression of this amazing, divine, selfless love. And we are kidding ourselves if we think somehow we're going to advance the church in some other way. Those of us who belong to Christ no longer depend on the favors of this broken world to define us or defend us. We are loved by our King. His love provokes us to love others and His kingdom advances further still. I mean, I'm just going to point back to Susie and her example that she provided for us here this morning. How does God's kingdom advance in South Sudan? Does she move in and take over? Does she tell people what to do? Does she lean on them heavily until they finally convert? No, what does she do? She goes in and serves. She heals the sick. She binds up wounds. She helps them plant and grow and become fully realized human beings. That is how the kingdom of God is going to move and advance in our world, including our world right here that we're in. There's no other way. Cats and kitties, there's no other way. It's his way, and that's it. Good news is that Jesus is king. and We are under his rule. It's something we don't want to diminish or lose sight of, but it informs us, too, about our purpose and our place in this world. We are an outpost of this king. This king inaugurated on a cross. And as we can see, when he said it's finished, man, a lot was accomplished there. What was accomplished was immense in its meaning and its scope. Salvation and the church and the very kingdom of God in this world were born there on that cross. Incredible thing. So our challenge is to live as people who have been saved by his sacrifice. Not through our own ingenuity, not as people who pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, people who came to the end of our own rope and realized there's no hope for me except through him. So let's live the life that he purchased for us by his love. Let's determine to live according to his values, his purposes, his love. Let's find our sense of belonging in this community that he formed by his sacrifice. Not not just as something to do, but as something to belong to as a, a people to be. 
And above all, let's submit our lives to his rule, live according to his purposes, understanding ourselves according to his intent for life, not just expending it on our own selfish desires, but coming into what life really is like when we're willing to lay it down for the other. Nothing quite like it. To learn what his definition of us is and begin moving away from how the culture has defined us. Let's live securely as servants of our loving king. Let's be his agents as outposts of his kingdom here on earth. Right on? All right, very cool. If you're able, will you stand with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. As we've presented ourselves here before your word, we pray, Father, that you, by your spirit, will shape us. Shape us into who it is that you intended us to be. We long for you, Lord. And we thank you, Father, for your willingness to go to this extent to show your love for us. Lord, we could look at it and get sentimental and emotional about the price that you paid and the, and the injustice of it. You who did no wrong, whose hands only healed others, being pinned down by nails on a cross. But most important of it all, Father, help us to recognize the dynamic of your rule, the power that's represented in that amazing sacrificial love. Help us, Father, step into that same power, to experience that power, and then share that, the power of your love, in the world where we've been placed. I pray that that's true for every person that's here today. Awaken us to our mission and our calling to demonstrate your love to a world so desperately in need of it. I pray this for us, Father, as a church, as the individuals who make up the church. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. All things have passed away, your love has stayed the same, your constant grace remains the cornerstone. Things that we thought
up our time here together than to all confess that in one voice. We love you. We do love you, Lord. We thank you for your love for us. It wasn't that we set out to find you or love you. You loved us first and drew us in, and we thank you for that. So, Father, uh, 
Bless this community as we head into this new year. Bless us by forming us into the people you intended us to be. We give you our lives, Father. We give you our hearts. We give you our choices. We ask you to shape them. Make us your own. We pray in Jesus' name.